This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back to 15-Minute History, a podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Henry Winsek, graduate student of history here at UT and assistant editor at Not Even Past. And today I'm speaking with Robert Olwell, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, who specializes in the British Atlantic world of the 18th century and the early American South. Uh, Welcome, Professor Olwell. Hello. The Declaration of Independence is arguably one of the most recognizable and oft-quoted documents in American history, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and so forth. But what might not be so recognizable to uh, our listeners is the first version of the Declaration, uh, which Thomas Jefferson wrote. So uh, if you could just talk about uh, that draft, the backgrounds of that draft, and how it was different. Okay. Um, As you say, everyone knows that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, but what isn't remembered as well is that what we read when you go to the National Archives or when you see it in a textbook, what we read is not entirely what Jefferson wrote. That is, it's it's a product of a, of a committee. In fact, the, the Congress meeting as a committee of the whole uh, considered, you know, Jefferson presented his draft to them on June 28th, and they debated it really line by line and made substantial uh, changes, mostly um, deletions. And so it's interesting to compare, in a sense, what Jefferson originally wrote and what Congress decided uh, they wanted to say. So in terms of the language of the original drafts, where do we see the differences between the drafts and the final version that we're all familiar with? The most famous of the, of the deletions is a long paragraph he writes. If, if, if people know, remember the structure of the Declaration is basically a kind of, uh, I guess you could say, a divorce petition, <laughs> right? There's the preamble, which everyone has heard, you know, one in the course of human events, which is sort of laying out uh, the cause, and then there is a long section that really is rarely read anymore, uh, where they're justifying uh, and laying all the blame for the problems on the king. So it's th- this this long section, really the main body of the declaration, where it, uh, these clauses or paragraphs begin. He has, he had, he being the king, and he has, and then the crimes that he's done to America. But the one that uh, everybody knows what he's talking about is when he blames uh, the king, and by extension, I guess the British. Uh, for slavery, right? This is a paragraph. It's one of the, it's probably the longest and last and longest of the he hases of the causes or justifications, right? And I'm just read a little bit of it just to get a sense of Jefferson's language. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty, in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. Determined to keep an open market where men should be bought and sold, he has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce. Hmm. And that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact of distinguished die, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us and to purchase the liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he also obtruded them thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. So there's all kinds of things going on there. We could talk about what Jefferson's talking about and also why he's putting it in there. And of course, the the next level is why did the Congress decide uh, that it was better left unsaid? There is a striking difference in his language in this 
or his tone, let's say, in this paragraph. You can see the kind of words like uh, execrable commerce, prostituted is negative. Uh, you know, it's just a much more emotional, uh, violent language than we've seen up till now. Up till now, the Declaration has had a kind of lawyerly tone, and then suddenly we get this very emotional passage. So what does the uh, Jefferson, first of all, writing this passage, and then his editors, so to speak, removing this passage, what does that process tell us about how the founders uh, viewed slavery at this point and how they were trying to deal with that issue? Well, one thing it shows us is that slavery was an issue, Mm -hmm. that not only were Americans themselves thinking about it, but in their long argument, 10-year-long argument with Britain, uh, the British had often thrown slavery in the Americans' face as as a sign of Americans' hypocrisy. Why is it we hear the loudest yelps for liberty from drivers of Negroes? It was the famous uh, jibe from Samuel Johnson. And that those things had stung. And um, in some places, Americans talked about needing to do something about slavery. Uh, and Jefferson himself uh, talks about it in other places. And so partly, I think, what he's doing is he's anticipating, let's say, you can look at the Declaration as a piece of rhetoric as well as a, as a political document. So he's, in a sense, trying to get the last word in this argument. He's anticipating uh, the jibe, slave, you know, Jefferson, of course, as, as everyone knows, was a slaveholder himself. Um, and he's trying to, to sort of turn it around, on, turn it on to the British, right? Because the, the gist of his, his passage here is that uh, slavery uh, is... The, Britain's sin, Britain's crime, because it's a British ship that went to Africa and captured the slaves and then brought them to Virginia. So the Americans, in a sense, are saying, you started it, right? Slavery is really, you know, begins with Britain. He's also speaking a little bit there about the fact that in the fall of 1775, the royal governor of Virginia, uh, Dunmore, had offered freedom to the slaves of rebel masters who would fight for the king. When he talks about uh, this double crime that now that they've enslaved these people, they're instigating them to rise up uh, and and murder uh, Americans. So he's doing all those things and the Congress reads it and doesn't want it. And uh, sort of the classic explanation for that is the one that you'll see if you go see the musical 1776, is that the Deep South, the Carolinas, uh, were determined after the revolution was over, to reopen the Atlantic slave trade. And obviously, this long paragraph, which is an attack on the Atlantic slave trade primarily, uh, would make that, if not impossible, at least hypocritical. But um, I think another reason you could say that it's cut out is it doesn't work. That is, it doesn't take long to think about before you start thinking, but it's a trade. It's a slave trade. That is, the British may have gone to Africa. The, slave, the Atlantic slave trade may have been a British trade that is carried in British ships. But they're selling them. I mean, they, when they arrive in Virginia, they're finding e- eager buyers. So I can also say the Congress is just saying, yes, slavery is a weak point in our argument. It might be our Achilles heel in terms of rhetoric. Um, but this isn't, you know, you're not solving the problem here. Mm. And you're, in fact, drawing attention to it. Mm. Uh, and so both for, uh, you could say, political reasons, the Deep South wants to reopen the trade, but also for as rhetorical reasons, you could say this passage, however heartfelt it is from Jefferson, and you can almost see Jefferson trying to almost expunge the, the sin of slavery you know, in a scapegoat sort of way, give it to the British as we, as we declare our independence. Um, and it might even, if you're going to give Jefferson you know, a, 
some benefit of the doubt, say Jefferson's approaching it, it. It's so bitter and violent in its language that even though it's directed at the slave trade, the execrable commerce is the, the Atlantic slave trade. Obviously, you know, slavery itself is by implication odious, and so we might even see this as a as a Jefferson trying to make an anti-slavery move. Mm. Um, that also, perhaps, you know, the Congress just wasn't ready for the thing. You know, one one cause at a time. So, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is one of the most often quoted and probably most familiar phrases in American history. But in fact, it was it might have been appropriated from another quote that was slightly different. Uh, talk about that a little bit. No, actually, Jefferson made the change in his, I guess, uh, hotel room. <laughs> Uh, but there is a change there, but it's one that the Congress allowed to stand. That is, uh, as Jefferson knew, and as anybody at the time would have known, uh, the idea of natural rights uh, would be drawn from John Locke and others. But Locke himself, who was very influential, uh, had detailed three rights uh, that were all you know, natural, inherent, and inalienable. Uh, and for Locke, they were life, liberty, and property. And it's always struck me as interesting that Jefferson makes a kind of, you could say, a, a, an editorial decision of his own there in his a study in Philadelphia while he's writing his draft. He writes life and liberty, but then he doesn't write property. He writes, in fact, this really rather strange phrase, pursuit of happiness. Uh, and that's had scholars scratching their heads ever since. Why did he do that? What did he mean by it? Um, some people want to say, well, by happiness, he means property, but that's strikes me uh, unlikely, since property was the obvious word. It was, must have been on the tip of his, his quill pen. And so some people have said, well, the happiness is an attempt to talk about a social good, you know, a happiness for the many, a kind of um, Scottish Enlightenment idea. That's what Gary Wills argued in his book. I wondered if it ties back again to Jefferson's pondering of slavery, um, that if Jefferson is interested in possibly... Um, opening the door or leaving the door open to attack slavery later on, he probably would have thought that if I write property here uh, as an inalienable natural right that predates government, supersedes government, um, it would be difficult, since slaves are, of course, property, for any government to uh, act against slavery in the future and maybe what made him pause there and write Pursuit of Happiness was a desire to leave that door open because, as as we have done, we can argue, what do you mean, Pursuit of Happiness? For whom? Happiness for the individual or for the community? Is it a social good? If it's a social good and it's a collective happiness, uh, there's a possibility, at least, that uh, individual property right would have to, you know, you would have to bend uh, to, the, to the, the general will or the public good, including, of course, individual property right and slaves. Uh, and that, that idea is also in keeping with some of the classical Republican ideas that were in the air in 1776, this idea of a commonwealth uh, of, of shared interests of citizens. One of the really fascinating things about uh, Jefferson's draft is how he approaches Britain and the king. You described it as a divorce almost. There's a degree of sadness in the language in the fact that there was the separation between uh, Britain and, and America. Can you talk about sort of, sort of the emotions behind that language? Yeah, this is another. This is the other big uh, deletion by the Congress from Jefferson's original draft, and it's a part where he approaches closest to the kind of emotion, as you say, of the of the moment. He's, he's at this point speaking directly to the to the British people, right? 
the king is at blame, but in, in a sense, he's also saying the British people are to blame for not coming to our help. Um, and he sort of turns to them and starts to talk. What he says is, um, we have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, as well as to the ties of our common kindred. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and consanguinity, common blood. Um, and then here's a big section that, the, that, that was deleted. He says, at this very time too, sorry, they, that is the British people, are permitting their chief magistrate to send over not only soldiers of our common blood, but Scotch and foreign mercenaries to invade and destroy us. These facts have given the last stab to agonizing affection, and manly spirit bids us to renounce forever these unfeeling brethren. We must endeavor to forget our former love for them and to hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace friends. We might have been a free and a great people together, but a communication of grandeur and freedom, it seems, is below their dignity. Be it so, since they will have it, the road to happiness is open to us too. Hmm. Almost sounds like a jilted lover there. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think that there is this assumption now that Americans were really desperate to separate themselves from Britain and regarded Britain as an enemy. But this document really shows that despite the conflicts, there was uh, a degree to which Jefferson and a lot of Americans maybe wanted to reconcile and were really um, were sad, for lack of a better word, that they could not. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. There's one, one member of the Congress on the day they vote to adopt independence uh, writes in his diary that he, he says, I've been crying all day. Mm. I feel like, what does he say, a young son forced by the hand of his father's violence out into a cruel world. Um, Yeah, I think there is a way in which, if you look at the argument that had been going on between the colonies and Britain for, for, as I say, 10 years or more, uh, the colonists had been insisting all along that they were British, that they had the rights of Britons, um, that traveling across the ocean had not changed their station or cost them those rights. Jefferson himself had insisted that in his summary view of the rights of British America in 1774. And in a way, you could almost say American was a pejorative. You know, American was being thrown about mostly by the English as a way of saying you're not British. You're something different and something, of course, less. So the grand irony at the end of the Declaration is, in a sense, the colonists are saying, you know, you're right. You win the argument. We're not British. We're American. <laughs> but, you know, but we're also equal. We're as good as you are, but, we, but we're going to be separate. The Congress cut that out. Why? I guess because it's a lament, right? It's a lament for what might have been. It's, it's looking backward and it's, again, too emotional. Manly spirit must be prevailing here, as Jefferson himself says there. So this is a, a bit more difficult and hypothetical question, but um, let's assume for a second that these changes remained in the Declaration and became the final draft of the Declaration. How do you think that might change the, the United States government, some of the values that we have, and especially with respect to slavery? Well, that's the one that strikes you as the most important if that paragraph had remained, uh, the Declaration would, of course, been much more explicitly anti-slavery than it turned out to be, than it, or at least than the final version was. I mean, there was the all men are created equal, and we've debated, as they did then, what do you mean by equal, what do you mean by men? Um, and certainly it had that phrase had, had anti-slavery implications, but nothing as explicit as that paragraph would have been, so... Uh, the United States would have taken an anti-slavery stand, which, you know, as I guess the South Carolina delegates <laughs> feared, might have made it 
difficult to resume the slave trade after the war, which they did do. Uh, might have been uh, easier for the national government, perhaps, to, to propose anti-slavery legislation. So I think that's interesting. And given the uh, the edits, as you describe it, that uh, were made to the original documents, what, what do you think that says about how um, Americans at this point wanted to present themselves? What, what were they trying to accomplish by this Declaration of Independence? And what message were they trying to um, project to the world? Well, in some ways, the Declaration is necessary as a piece of politics and diplomacy, as they discussed at the time. You know, we would like to get foreign aid, specifically French aid, and no one's going to do that until we sort of, you know, nail our colors to the mast, right? If we're still arguing that we're British and we're fighting for some measure of imperial reform, well, that no one's interested, the French aren't going to be interested in helping. But if we, you know, declare ourselves an independent country, uh, then, you know, that's a possibility. So, you know, even in common sense, Paine is saying this will be the fruit of independence as we'll be able to, you know, get aid from France. Um, the structure of the document, I mean, it, in some ways you could say it's so much more than it needed to be. Uh, it's become a famous document because it's so eloquent, especially the the beginning. Uh, you know, it justifies what they're doing in their own mind. Um, I'm not sure if it actually persuaded many people. That is, people who were inclined to be patriots, you know, of course, liked it. And Washington had it read aloud to the troops and so on. Loyalists tend to, to dislike it and tend to especially get into the he has clauses and show how some of them were were you know specious, let's say, or at least not really that serious a grievance. There was, you know, you can find point by point loyalist rebuttals. And finally, there are some strange marks on the original drafts of the Declaration. Uh, can you talk about uh, what happened there? Yeah, it, there there was a recently, I don't know, a few years ago, a movie called National Treasure, where there's supposedly a hidden secret map or, or message on the back of the Declaration, um, and it's a kind of a fun movie that way. But what's what's interesting is that um, although there's not a secret treasure and a secret map, there is, in a weird way, a, a hidden uh, secret in the Declaration of Independence, and, and it's a secret that was uh, kept, let's say, or not noticed for 200 years. Really, it was only in 1976 that someone uh, broke the code, as it were. Um, and what you'd notice is, if you look at the the famous printed version, the first printed version of the Declaration of Independence, I mean, of course, they want to get the word out, so they rush uh, a copy to the press, and the uh, the printer in Philadelphia is named John Dunlap. So these are the Dunlap. They're very they're worth millions now. The Dunlap. Mm-hmm. Uh, he only you know he printed a couple hundred very quickly. Um, but if you have a copy of one, and they're easy to get online or, or gift shops, one of the things you'll notice is that there are sort of inexplicably large spaces scattered through the document, um, and more than you'd need to sort of justify the margins. So there are these gaps. Uh, and then a, a scholar went back and found uh, Dunlop's first, I guess, print run. He you know, set the type, in movable type. He set it, he, he printed a copy, and then before he, he mass-produced it, as it were, he sent that printed copy to someone in the Congress, and they changed it. That is, the, the first print is different from the subsequent prints. And what's different is where those spaces are in the big print run that we have, where those spaces are in the original print, the first draft of the printed version, there are quotation marks in those spaces, mm. even though they don't make any sense in terms of what's in the document. Mm. And then people went back to Jefferson's 
uh, what was called a reading copy. Jefferson, as the author of the Declaration, was tasked with the job of reading it aloud to the Congress before they started to debate it. And we know that Jefferson was a terrible public speaker and incredibly shy about it. So, in his usual methodical way, he had marked his draft with uh, these, these dashes, which were to indicate to him as he read where to pause uh, in order to maximize, I guess, the rhetorical effect. And there's a whole wow. lore in the 18th century about uh, rhetoric and oratory that Jefferson was very uh, aware of. So, in a sense, what's fascinating about it is that Jefferson marked and wrote the Declaration almost like a piece of music, like with a kind of meter, right? That pace that you were supposed to keep to help himself read it aloud. And then it's assumed that in their haste to get it to the press, Jefferson's copy with these speaking marks had been sent to the printer by mistake, or at least no one had told the printer, don't bother with these dashes. (laughs) And so the printer, seeing these inexplicable dashes, uh, just thought, well, these are quotations, which for, you know, which they're in the text I was given, so I'm going to put them in the, the version. So, according to the most recent scholarship, there is no national treasure, though. No, they haven't. Yeah, they haven't applied the lemon juice, I think, to the back <laughs> to see if anything pops out. But, but at least there is that sense of, uh, of uh, almost you could say, if you wanted to be romantic, Jefferson's voice reading the, the text aloud to us. Well, Professor Robert Owell, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, this has been another episode of 15 Minute History, and we will see you next time. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to have us talk about on an upcoming episode of 15 Minute History, go to our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15 Minute History, that's one five minute history, and click on the Contact Us link in the right sidebar. The opinions and views expressed in today's episode are not representative of the University of Texas at Austin or any of its constituent bodies and are solely those of the people who spoke them.